Let's open our Bibles now to Judges. We're going to be looking at Judges chapter 10 through 12 tonight. And if you recall, the last time we were together, which was two Thursdays ago, we looked at Judges chapter 9 and we saw the, the ministry, really, of Abimelech. And remember, Abimelech was the, one of the sons of Gideon. Gideon had 70 sons. It's recorded for us in chapter 8, verse 30 and 31, that Gideon had 70 sons. And one of his sons was an illegitimate son from a concubine or for a female, from a female servant uh, from Shechem. And his name, uh, this son who was born to her, was uh, Abimelech. And Abimelech was shunned by the other 70 sons because he wasn't seen as uh, part of the family. They kind of looked at, at him as an outcast. And ultimately it was uh, Abimelech trying to gain power uh, over his 70 brothers. And in fact, um, it says in chapter 9, as we looked at two weeks ago, that Abimelech hired uh, some uh, fellows, really mercenaries, really, to help kill uh, his 70 brothers. And then the rest of the, of the chapter is really him trying to secure himself as a king or as a leader. And we saw his demise when one of the cities that he was going up against, uh, a lady who was in a tower, as he was approaching the tower and, and attempting to burn it down with his followers, a woman dropped the upper part of a millstone, and a millstone, the upper part, is, is that cement piece that's about that big around, and um, that's the top piece. The bottom part is the really huge thing, uh, but this piece was the upper part, and she pushed that over the top of the tower, went down and, and crushed his skull, literally, and, and he died. And so uh, at the very end of chapter 9, that is what happened uh, to him. And the Bible says in, in chapter 10 here, uh, in a very quick fashion, because there's really not a lot known about these two other judges that succeeded uh, Gideon. The first one was Tola, and he judged Israel 23 years, and, and he died. And then Jair was another man who judged Israel for 22 years. And it says that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. So this is a little fact that I think is really kind of interesting uh, because this, this judge right prior to Jephthah had uh, sons, who, 30 sons, who rode on 30 donkeys. And, and for some reason it seems kind of interesting that as, as leaders began to come into power throughout Israel's history, you see them doing some interesting things. One of them is multiplying uh, sons. And, and daughters, and especially sons. And you see them multiplying horses even. We see that even in Solomon's case, where against the Lord's direction, Solomon had, had a number of horses. He had a number of wives. And these were all things that God really uh, prohibited a king of Israel to do. And so even here in the book of Judges, we see this kind of building up of some kind of, you know, um, bravado, some kind of uh, presence as a king and some kind of you know, status. And, and you do that by having 30 sons. And what better way to do that than to put those 30 sons on 30 donkeys? And so we're going to see this kind of thing as we get into Jephthah here um, uh, toward the end of our time together tonight in chapter 12. But let's go ahead and read um, 
Actually, before we read this, this is the sixth period. If you recall, there are seven periods in the book of Judges, and tonight we're going to be looking at the sixth of the seven periods uh, in the time of the Judges, and it's going to be in the life of Jephthah. Jephthah. So let's actually read verses 6, uh, chapter 10, verse 6, down through 18, and then we'll go back, and then we'll just continue to go through uh, chapters 11 and 12. But just to kind of get us a, a, a framework of where we're beginning from, let's read those uh, verses. So, verse 6 of chapter 10, and it says, and now remember, this is after Abimelech, this is after Tola, and after Jair, these two men, 45 years have gone by, and now it says, then, verse 6, the children of Israel, again they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. Verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. And from that year they harassed and oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years. All the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. Moreover, the people of the Ammon crossed, or I'm sorry, moreover, the people of Ammon crossed over the Jordan to fight against Judah, also against Benjamin, and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you, because we have both forsaken our God and served the Baals. And so the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines, also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Maonites uh, oppressed you? And you cried out to me and I delivered you from their hand, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. Go and cry to your gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in your time of distress. And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. So they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. And then the people of Ammon gathered together and encamped in Gilead, and the children of Israel assembled together and encamped in Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin the fight against the people of Ammon? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Let's go back and look at verse 6 here, and we'll just go right along here. Uh, in verse 6 it says, Then the children of Israel, again, they, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And one of the unfortunate things that Israel got caught up in is idolatry. And they never really uh, got beyond this. In fact, if you recall, as if, if we were to fast forward uh, several hundreds of years into the future from the time that we're in right now in the book of Judges, it was because of that, because of their unwillingness to really crucify this part of their life, it was what led them into captivity. It led the northern ten tribes into captivity. It also led the, north, the southern two tribes into captivity uh, uh, to Babylon as well. And so this has been a failure on their part for, for a long time, and they just keep seeing to perpetuating it. And 
Before we get too hard on the Jews, we must remember that uh, the, the same is true for us. I know before I came to the Lord, and even now, there are times where you know something is not right, and then yet it's so easy to just go ahead and do it anyway. And see, we have to get beyond that. We have to no longer allow those kinds of things in our life. It doesn't mean that God's going to you know, forget about us or He doesn't care about us. No, but because He's done what He's done and He's given us the Spirit of God in us, and for the first time in our lives, as a result of being born again, we have this wonderful grace to resist and to be victorious over sin in our life. And so be encouraged by that. You know, don't, don't, allow, don't think to yourself that sin should have dominion any longer over you. It does not have to have dominion over you. You, have, you are dead in Christ. That old man has been crucified in Him. And just as Jesus rose from the grave on that third day, so we also have been risen by the Spirit of God in us. And as He rose from the grave, His Spirit is raising us and will raise us even yet into the future. And so, going into verse 6 here, he says, The children of Israel, they, again, they did evil, in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Now, what's interesting, I find, is that this phrase, evil in the sight of the Lord, this actually is mentioned uh, eight times in the book of Judges. Eight times within seven verses. Within seven verses. For those of you who like to take notes on these, you might want to just write the references down really quick. The first one is in Judges chapter 2, verse 11. The next one is in chapter 3, verse 7. The next one is chapter 3, verse 12. And it actually mentions it twice in that verse. And then chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 10, verse 6, where we're at right now. And it will ultimately mention it one other time when we get into Samson. And that's in chapter 13, verse 1. And so, again, they're just they're continually floundering and they, 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 in, in their hearts, desire that they, they will say that, Lord, forgive me. And, and God, you know, is so wonderful. And, and we're going to get into that because uh, God is so patient. He's so gracious with them. And, and He's the same with us. The Bible says that He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He cannot change. To me, that's wonderful news for us because if He cannot change, then the way we see Him dealing with people and certainly with nations in the Bible really encourages my faith and should encourage yours as well because He's not the same. He's not partial either. He's not just going to treat the Israelites one way and the Jews, or, or I'm sorry, the Gentiles or even the church differently. No, He treats everybody. The Bible says that He, he causes His his sun and the rain to shine on the just and the unjust. He and and that's what that's what uh, uh, frustrates people as they see evil people prospering and everything going well, but yet they don't understand their end if they don't turn and repent. And and so we often get frustrated because of that. But remember, God is, it's His goodness, right, that leads men to repentance. It's His goodness that led me to repentance. And it's His goodness that continues to lead me into repentance. I, I love that. Even now, it's like, the, have you ever felt that way when you've known you've blown it? You've done something, you've said something, you've thought something. Whatever it is, you really blew it and you know you did. And sometimes, especially if it's you know something everyone saw, or even if it's just something privately, you knew you blew it. And yet God, He loves you. And the Bible says that if we just confess it, and turn away from it, you know, confess it, and, and, and he will 
be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us. So be, be encouraged in that. You know, some of you that are on tonight, you know, there's something that happened today, something that happened yesterday, something that happened this last week you're really ashamed of. Maybe it was a thought. Maybe it was a word that came out of your mouth. Maybe it was an action. It doesn't really matter. The thing is, is to take it to the cross, take it to Jesus, and leave it there. Leave it there. Don't go sifting through it again because He doesn't... He's already put it behind him if you confess it. So there's no need for you to be reveling in it or rolling around in the grave clothes of that sin. It's gone. He sees it as gone, but yet we still see it. And so set yourself free and believe the Bible and believe less of your emotions about how you feel about your sin. Believe what the Bible says and let it set you free. And may it actually encourage you in your worship of him. Because if you really believe that, and I, I believe that it honors the Lord when we do that, what does that do? That causes our hearts to be lifted, doesn't it? it? It really is. I've actually done that myself. When I've done something and I'm just like, oh Lord, I'm such a bonehead. <laughs> and then I confess it, and by faith I believe that He has forgiven me. It's as if it never happened. And if I can go forward in my day knowing that He sees it no more, it honors him. Do you understand? Because that, may, that means that what he did on the cross was so effectual that it took away that sin. It took away even the guilt if we're willing to let it go. And I tell you, that is a wonderful thing. So let's get back into it. And in verse 6, it says that not only did they do evil in the sight of the Lord, but they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. These are the male and female uh, deities that, that, that were worshipped in Canaan at this time. And again, Notice that there are seven different gods mentioned here in verse 6. The Baals, the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon, the gods of the Philistines. You know, throughout the Bible we know that the number seven is significant because it speaks of completeness. It speaks of um, perfection. Uh, and certainly this is not perfection, but we see... Uh, God in even in these the numbers of these things and, and and how good He is. But notice it says that at the end of verse six that they forsook the Lord and they did not serve Him. The word forsook there is means exactly what it says. They left Him. They departed from Him. They neglected Him. They uh, uh, um, they uh, apostized uh, away from Him. And uh, and notice that it says that. Notice that it doesn't say that they, they could not, but they did not serve Him. They did not. See, it's a, it's a deliberate choice. The thing we have to remember is it's always a matter of the will. Our will has to be engaged in everything moral, in every decision that we make on this earth. We have to be involved in it, and it's a matter of the will. I will to love my wife, and I will to do things... And the, the, the challenge for all of us is to will to do something when our emotions aren't engaged in it. Have you ever, uh, no, did you ever encounter a situation where you knew it was the right thing to do something to, for someone, maybe a spouse, maybe a friend, maybe whoever, and yet in your, in your heart that day, that moment, you just weren't really feeling like it. <laughs> you weren't really feeling up to it. And yet, the wonderful thing is, is that when we are obedient to do the right thing, when we are not feeling it, 
That is worship. And the devil will come along and say, you are a hypocrite because you, you, you really didn't mean it. You were just doing it, going through the motions. Well, isn't that what sin is? Isn't sin going through the motions? In fact, sin is the absence of even thinking sometimes. It's very easy to sin, but boy, is it hard to do the right thing. And when you purpose to do the right thing, the devil is certainly there saying, you are just the biggest hypocrite because in your heart, you don't want to do it. In your heart, you don't really feel that way. But guess what happens when you do that? You do that sacrificial thing and you see the light on somebody's face that you just blessed. And what does that do to you? It encourages you, doesn't it? That's what love is so wonderful like that. When sacrificial, when love is done in such a way, in any way, when it's sacrificial, there is a reciprocity about that. You, you, you get a reciprocal effect by it when you do it because you see how the other person responds. Sometimes you might be surprised. You know, sometimes they may be totally blown away. It didn't seem like a big deal to you because in your heart you're thinking, I've had a bad day. I don't even want to do this, but I brought home flowers to my wife even though my heart wasn't completely engaged in it. And then you come home and you walk through the door and she's been having maybe a tough day and she sees you bringing those flowers even with your... She doesn't see the half-hearted attempt in your heart, but you do it and she just breaks down and just and, and weeps for joy or you know whatever it is you know wraps her arms around you and gives you a big kiss or or whatever you know those are the kind of things that 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 change people's lives but notice that they forsook the lord and they did not serve him it's not that they could not cuz they could but they chose not to it is always a matter of the will and why would anyone want to leave the lord anyway you know the lord has been He's slow to anger. He's so patient with us. You know, man is impatient, and we're easy to get angry, and, and therefore people get frustrated. They get frustrated because they don't understand the nature of God. You know, people mistake his patience and his forbearance as license to continue in sin, and that somehow he is, he's condoning it because he, you haven't gotten caught or the person hasn't gotten caught. And on the other side of the fence, when he, when he doesn't judge quickly something that we think should be judged, we get impatient and vengeful, and we want to take matters into our own hands. And again, it's the goodness of God, we have to remember, that leads us to repentance. Notice in verse 7 what it says. It says, So the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. Now, one of the things, this word hot literally means to burn. It's, it's a furious type of glowing anger. <laughs> and, and that's really what it means. And in the book of he, uh, Judges, I almost said Hebrews for some reason, but in the book of Judges, the Lord uses this same phrase four different times. Uh, the first time we heard it, if you're a note taker, write these down because this will encourage you. Um, the first time was in Judges 2 verse 14. The next time was in Judges 2 verse 20. The next time is in 3 verse 8. And then right here in chapter 10 verse 7. But God's his anger against was against Israel. It was hot. And notice, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the people of Ammon. The idea of sold there is literally to sell them like merchandise. You know, I never want to get to the point, and I've given the Lord plenty of opportunity to be angry with me, but I, I, I never, you know, the more you know him, isn't it true that you, that you don't really want to anger him? I don't want to anger him. I don't want to put him... I don't want to do something and put myself in a position where I'm making him angry. I want to be that person that puts a smile on his face. You know, I'm going to make my mistakes. I'm going to sin occasionally. I'm going to do these things in my heart. 
but the, the, the overall tenure of my life, and hopefully yours too, is to please the Lord, to please Him because of what He's done. You know, I don't want to be sold into the hand of anything. But notice, he was so angry with them because of their idolatry that he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the people of Ammon. Now remember, we, we have talked about the Philistines in the past, but just as a way of review quickly here, uh, the Philistines, remember, were a non-Semitic people. When I say non-Semitic, what that means is a, 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 a Semite or someone who is uh, Semitic is somebody who comes from the line of Shem, okay? Somebody who is non-Semitic or, or is somebody who did not come from the line of Shem. In fact, these people, the Philistines, they were actually, they came from Crete, the island of Crete. And there was a time when they came down from Crete across the Mediterranean into the very uh, shores of Africa and Pharaoh drove them out and the Philistines, as a seafaring people, they just went right up the coast and settled in modern-day Israel. And, but they are from the line of Ham. In fact, in Genesis chapter 10, you can go there yourself, but go there and look at Genesis chapter 10, uh, specifically verse 6, and then verses 13 and 14, because it tells us that they were from the sons of Ham, and one of uh, Ham's sons was named Mizraim, and Mizraim... Um, begat Ludim, Anamim, Lahabim, Neftuhim, Pathrusim, uh, and Kasluhim, from whom came the Philistines and Kaphtorim. And so uh, you can see that the Philistines came from the line of Hem. So they were a non-Semitic people. <laughs> they were a non-Semitic people. And then the other group here that the Lord was going to sell Israel into the hands of was the people of Ammon. Remember, when the Lord came uh, to Abraham and was going to bring judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, Lot, his nephew, was currently living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord, remember, by uh, the ministry of two angels, brought him and his family, was trying to get his family out, and only three of them escaped. The rest of them didn't care, and one of, his, one of them, his wife, turned back and, and, and perished. But... Uh, before he uh, brought destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah, he brought Lot and his two daughters out of that. And you recall what happened in Genesis chapter 19, beginning in verse 30 through 36, that um, actually 30 through 38, actually. But um, the girls, uh, after they had escaped the, the judgment, they went up into a mountain, uh, the two girls and their father, uh, Lot, and they got their father drunk and through incestuous relationships with their father who was drunk, uh, those two girls were pregnant with uh, boys. And one of them, you remember, was Ben-Ami, or the sons of Ammon, or Ammon. And the other one was um, Moab. And so that, those were the, 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 the children of those two sisters. And the people of Ammon, we're going to see a lot of them in the chapter that we're looking at tonight. The people of Ammon, they inhabited the land east of the Jordan River. So it was the land that the Israelites first came to and the land that they first conquered before they crossed over westward across the Jordan River into what we call and what they call the Promised Land. But the, the Ammonites, they were very, um, they were content at dwelling 
on the other side. And, um, and so, and although they were a Semitic people, they were not friendly to the children of Israel. And we're going to see tonight that they weren't friendly at all. So going on in verse 8, it says, From that year they harassed the, the Ammonites, they oppressed the children of Israel for 18 years, and all the children of Israel who were on the other side of the Jordan in the land of the Amorites in Gilead. So now just picture in your map uh, or in your mind a map and on the east side or the right side of the map is on the right side of the Jordan there is where they lived and where they dwelt. And so in Gilead is a mountain range. If you were to uh, be standing in the Jordan River looking east, the first thing you're going to see is a mountain range and it goes all the way down from the Dead Sea all the way up to the Sea of Galilee or the or Lake Gennesaret, that whole mountain range right in front of you is called Gilead. And just over the mountain and some land in there, that whole area is Gilead. Um, it's a strip of land uh, going up. And so that is uh, where this area was. So moreover, the people of Ammon, verse 9, they crossed over the Jordan. Now, so the the, the people of Ammon, now they're going to go westward to fight against who? Judah, and against Benjamin, and against Ephraim. And those would be the first three tribes that, would be, that would, they, would, they would encounter as they crossed the Jordan at that time. And so they would go there, and, um, and, and so the, the, the Israel was severely distressed, it says there in verse 9. And then we're going to see in verse 10 here the common refrain uh, for the children of Israel, and that is this. And the children of Israel, what they do? They cried out to the Lord and they said, We have sinned against you, God, because we have both forsaken our God and we have served the Baals. We've served the Baals. We've forsaken you. And notice the Lord's response. In fact, verses 11 through 14, you're going to see this wonderful response of God, and it ought to sound familiar to us. It's, it's not um, easy. Uh, because what he's going to say to them is a rebuke, but it's an awesome uh, command of God, an awesome word of God. So he says, So the Lord said to the children of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and from the people of Ammon and from the Philistines? Also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the, Ma the Maonites, which um, many uh, in the Septuagint um, version of the Bible which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, this, instead of Maonites, it says Midianites. And that would make sense, certainly, based on what we saw with Gideon, because what the Lord is doing here in verses 11 and 12 is He's really chronicling the deliverances that God had given to the children of Israel up to this moment. And so He's listing the, the different peoples that God had delivered them from. And so He said in verse 12, And also the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Midianites, they oppressed you, and you cried out to Me, God says. And He says, I delivered you from their hands. Hand. I delivered you from their hand, yet you have forsaken me and you've served other gods. Therefore, I will deliver you no more. And boy, that is the thing that I never want to hear from God. I never want to hear the clock is tick, you know, the, the, your time is up. You know, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear of a final, in a sense, a judgment like that. Nobody wants to hear that. But notice what God, he's very serious about what he says. He says, I will deliver you no more. And in fact, he goes on in verse 14, and he says, Go and cry to the gods which you have chosen. Let them deliver you in, their, in your time of distress. 
In fact, Warren Wiersbe had this to say, and I thought this was really wonderful. He said, the greatest judgment God can send to his people is to let them have their own way and not interfere. And, and that's often what God will do when we have uh, with an obstinate heart and a heart that's just bent on our rebellion and bent on doing things our own way. You know, sometimes God just says, he just backs away. And he just lets us have what we want. And sometimes that is the worst judgment for us because it's not even the best thing. It's going to turn to gravel in our mouth. It's not going to be what we thought it would be. The devil likes to give us those little carrots and he keeps the carrot right in front of us and the, and the gold and the silver and the things that look flashy, the things that have this uh, uh, promise of fulfillment and, and desire met. Uh, all those things are right before us, and then we reach for them, and they, 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 they're like cotton candy. They just they, they dissolve in our mouths, and we find ourselves more weakened. We find ourselves even more discouraged, more distraught, more distraught. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter, speaking of the consequences of listening to false teachers, etc., he said this, he said, For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. And that is exactly what God has just let them do. He's, gonna, he's, just, he's not going to deliver them uh, anymore. That's what he says. Now, there's an interesting twist to this. Because, well, before we go on to that, I want you to notice the similar wording uh, you know, in this section of Scripture uh, here in verse 10 down through verse 14 that we, that we just read because in it we see uh, a similar thing that God did in the past. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Um, if you remember back in Judges 2, verses 1 through 4, remember what it said uh, right as they were uh, coming into the land and, um, and uh, you know, after Joshua had died, it says, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt. And this ought to sound familiar with the passage we just read. Because notice, it's an angel of the Lord. This is a, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? <laughs> Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out from before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their God shall be a snare to you. And so it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. And there is the familiar refrain. God brings a harsh word and it breaks their heart for a moment, and they turn. And we are no different, folks. We are no different. Hopefully, as Christians, we're very different. But, you know, even before we were saved, that, that was much of my life. A lot of crocodile tears I had before I came to Christ. And also in Judges chapter 6, verse 7, there was a prophet of the Lord that was sent to the children of Israel just before he raised up Gideon, remember? And it says in verse 7 that it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites. Right? They cried out to him, and the Lord sent a prophet to them and said something similar. And he says, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all those who oppressed you. And I drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not 
obeyed my voice. Similar refrain, same thing that we just read. And so it's an awful thing when, when God has to remind. And, and you know, he's so patient. He, he doesn't give up on people, and I'm so thankful for that. So verse 15, it says, And the children of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. And this is a good sign. They, they finally agree to it. And they, they say, Do to us whatever seems best to you. Only deliver us this day, we pray. And you know, I really believe that they were really sincere. Because I know that there have been times where I was sincere. But I was sincerely deceived by my own self. Because I would be sorry because I got caught. I'd be sorry because I'm going through maybe uh, the consequences of my sin, and I'm sorry because of that. But I'm not really sorry that my heart was so evil that I did the thing that I did. And see, that is the key to it all. And that's the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And we're going to see that this was a worldly sorrow but because they didn't truly repent of their sin. But notice the reaction to God. This is what I find so incredible, is that um, they had 31 years of, of repentance. In, in other words, the next place that we see in Scripture where the children of Israel, where it says that they did evil in the sight of the Lord is in Judges 13, which we have yet to get to. And it was at the beginning of Samson's career. But it was at least 31 years later from this, from this moment that they did evil again after their short repentance. Now, 31 years is a long time. It's a long time in a person's life, but not so long in a nation, right? When we talk about a nation of people, uh, that's a whole different matter. Uh, 31 years is not a big deal. But um, we, can see, um, we can see that based on Judges 12, verse 7, because Jephthah, he served for six years. The, the judge after him, Ib Ibzan, seven years. Elon, the man after him, another 10 years. Abdon, another eight years. You add up the years, and it's 31 years. So from what we're reading here uh, in verses 10 through 14, you know, they, they really turned and they were good in a sense. They were repentant for a season of 31 years. But then when we get to Judges 13 verse 1, we're going to see the same thing happening all over again. But I notice what the Lord does. It says in verse 16, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and they served Jehovah. They served the Lord. So they did. They, they did turn from their sin. And, um, uh, and, and it says, But his soul could no longer endure the misery of Israel. You know, while God is certainly serious about sin, He's also serious about fanning the flame of repentance. Remember what He said just a few verses ago when He said, I will deliver you no more. But sometimes we need to hear a very hard, stern word to kind of shake us, to kind of jostle us out of our complacency out of our sin, and that's exactly what God did. He shook their tree really hard, and they did. They, they turned, and they, they put away the foreign gods, and they began serving Him again. And I love this where it says that you know God, he, His soul could no longer endure the misery of them. He loved them so much, and even though in His heart He knew that it would be another 31 years, and they would get right back into it again. They would get right back into it again, but His heart... Even at that moment, because he, he saw their sincerity, even though he saw that they weren't going to be faithful completely, he saw that their resolve was, it was sincere. And God, res, he, he responds to that, even though he knows the end from the beginning. And I love that about him, 
because if I were God and I had that knowledge, and I knew that 31 years later, in chapter 13, verse 1, that they would do evil in the sight of the Lord again, you know, as they're doing this now, I'd say, you know, you guys, you, you, you talk a big game, but you really don't follow through. So guess what? I'm not going to listen anymore. I'm, I'm literally going to say, I'm literally going to do what I said I was going to do. I'm not going to deliver you no more. But is that what he did? No. He did deliver them because his soul broke for them. And notice their immediate repentance, even though it was short, even though nationally it would be short-lived. I love what it says in Lamentations. Remember Lamentations written by Jeremiah after the destruction of Israel or after the destruction of Jerusalem, what does it say in Lamentations 3, verse 22? Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. God is ever compassionate. And that's a trait that for every believer ought to be evident in our lives. Compassion. Are you compassionate toward the plight of other people? When you see somebody homeless, do you, does your heart ache for them? Do you want to help them within reason? We know that in our time we live in, it's very difficult to sometimes help somebody in, in, a, in a deep need like that. You know, and, and sometimes we, there's something we can do, but we got to be careful how we do it. And so, but do, does your heart burn for that? Do you have compassion? It's a good trait to have. And I love what it says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 3, too. It says, A bruised reed he will not break, speaking of the Lord, and smoking flax he will not quench. Uh, he will bring forth justice for truth. And when he sees that you're a, you're a bruised reed, he's not going to break it. He's not going to continue just to tear it off. And when he sees a smoking flax, he's not just going to blow it out and extinguish the flame. It's quite the opposite. Doesn't it remind you of John 15 when the Lord holds up? You know, when he holds up that vine that's in the sun, he holds it up. And then, you know, instead of uh, extinguishing the flame, extinguishing the smoke that's there, that little bit of flame that's there, he fans it, he breathes on it. When you breathe on a fire, you're actually introducing oxygen, with, which is what the fire needs, and that's what God does. That's why we take a bellows and we, we, we do that. You know, we, we uh, flex the bellows to uh, put, insert oxygen into the fire to make it hotter. And that's exactly what God does. So, verse 17, Then the people of Ammon gathered together, and they encamped in Gilead. So these are the folks on the eastern shore of the Jordan. And the children of Israel, they assembled together, and they encamped in Mizpah. And there are many places in Israel where there's Mizpah. there is a Mizpah. And we believe this one's probably on the eastern side of the Jordan as well. But notice verse 18, it says, The people, the leaders of, the Gil of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the people of Ammon. He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Now, at this time in Israel's history, there was very little uh, spiritual leadership. There was very little leadership, period. And so they, they were just hunting for some man who was faithful, hunting for anyone who was faithful. <laughs> and they couldn't, it was very hard to find a faithful man, even in our day and age today, it's like a politician, you know, a faithful politician is hard to find. A real leader is hard to find. It's very difficult. So now we get into chapter 11. It says, now Jephthah, the Gileadite, so he is a member of, he, he's over in that land of Gilead, over on the, that strip of land going from north to south, 
going on the, on the eastern side of the Jordan River. It says that he was a mighty man of valor. Notice how the Lord addresses him. But he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. So Gilead was uh, Jephthah's father. We don't think this is, there are many different uh, Gileads, probably not the progenitor of the Gileadites. Uh, certainly it's probably not him. But Gilead begat Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore sons. And when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out. And they said to him, You shall have no inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. So remember, Jephthah was born of a harlot. So now you've got this. He's the, he's the black sheep of the family. And the other sons, they don't want anything to do with him. It sounds just like any normal story in America today. There, you know, There's some uh, son or daughter out of wedlock and, and the rest of them were born within the family from one mother and the rest of the family shuns the one and certainly it, nothing has changed. And so the sons, they drive him out. And if you look at Judges chapter 8 verses 30 and 31, we see a very similar thing that happened in the life of Gideon because Gideon's father had 70 sons and certainly um, he was the son of one of his um, his father's concubines, and uh, and his his brothers drew. Um, actually, I think I got that wrong here. I better get that right. Uh, yeah, Gideon. Uh, I'm sorry. Gideon had seven um, had seventy sons. I'm sorry, and um, and his concubine was in Shechem, and she bore a son, and his name was Abimelech. That was the the gentleman we we looked at uh, two weeks ago. And so, going on to verse 3 here, it says, Then Jephthah fled from his brothers, very naturally, and he dwelt in the land of Tob, which is probably uh, somewhere north, uh, east, uh, further from where he was. And, and notice, And worthless men banded together with Jephthah and went out raiding with him. So now he's got a bunch of uh, uh, miscreets, and, and they're going out and they're doing raidings and stuff like that. And it came to pass after a time, verse 4, that the people of Ammon made war against Israel. And so it was when the people of Ammon made war against Israel that the elders of Gilead, they went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. So when they said to Jephthah, come and be our commander that we may fight against the people of Ammon. Now remember, these are the people who just thrust him out. The, his brothers, his 70 brothers, uh, the, you know, they don't want anything to do with him. So they thrust him out. And now he's the black sheep of the family. But now when things get tough and they need somebody who's got some military experience, who do they call? The black sheep of the family. They come running for him. And so... They said to Jephthah, Come and be our commander, that we may fight against the people of Ammon. And so verse 7, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Do you not hate me? Or did you not hate me and expel me from my father's house? Why have you come to me now when, we, when you are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned again to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And there's the bait, isn't it? There's the bait. We've come to, you know, he's got this army of men. We don't know how big it is, but they're uh, uh, some lewd guys. And he's got this band. They're like, let's just get whoever we can. But in order to secure him to come in with his band of guys, they've got to dangle the bait of leadership over him. 
and um, uh, Jephthah was willing to do that. Now, it's interesting that as we go along here, you know, we, we, we don't want to paint Jephthah as being some kind of, um, you know, really no different than any other man, but he, he had some really good things, some good qualities about him. We're going to see that. And he also made a foolish error, which we're going to get into tonight. But let's go on because otherwise we won't get into it. Uh, so... So Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivers them to me, shall I be your head? In other words, are you going to promote me and and set me at the head, the captain of it all? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do according to your words. So then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And can you imagine what that meeting with the Lord must have been like? I, I would love to have heard what you know Jephthah said to the Lord, you know, just crying out to him and saying, Lord, you know, they didn't want anything to do with me. I was the black sheep of the family. Nobody wanted me. Now they want me. And now... Um, are you going to deliver me this, you know, the Ammonites into my hand, you know? So, then Jephthah, verse 11, went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. And Jephthah spoke all his words before the Lord of Mizpah. Now Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon. So now he sends an ambassador to the king of Ammon and says this. And so the king of the people of, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting this messed up here. Verse 12, Jephthah sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, saying, What do you have against me, that you have come to fight against me in my land? And the king of the people of Ammon answered back through an embassage, of course, through messengers. And he said, Because Israel took my land away when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok to the Jordan, now therefore restore those lands peaceably. And so in verse 14 through 27, we're just going to read straight through this, Jephthah gives them a history lesson and basically refutes his claims. So let's just get right into it. So Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon, and he said to him, Thus says Jephthah, Israel did not take away the land of Moab, nor the land of the people of Ammon. For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea. They came to Kadesh, and then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent either. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And all of this history is recorded for us in the Old Testament. But specifically, this particular part is in Deuteronomy, first three chapters of Deuteronomy. You can read that. So, and they went along the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab. And they came to the east side of the land of Moab, and they encamped on the other side of the Arnon, but they did not enter the border of Moab, for the Arnon was the border of Moab. So then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites. Remember, there's a difference between an Amorite and an Ammonite. They sound very similar, but one has an R and one has an N. It's easy to get uh, those confused because if you read it quickly, Amorite, Ammonite, they sound kind of similar, but they're very they're, they're two different peoples. So just be aware of that because I've made that mistake myself. Uh, let's see. So then Israel sent messengers to Sion, king of the Amorites, 
king of Heshbon and Israel said to them, Please let us pass through your land into our place. So uh, Jephthah is rehearsing what they said to them way back when. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. So Sihon gathered all of his people together. They encamped in Jahaz and they fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all of his people into the land or into the hand of Israel. And they defeated them. Thus Israel gained possession of all the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. Then they, they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon, which is a river, uh, to the Jabbok, and from the wilderness to the Jordan. And now the Lord, verse 23, the Lord God of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? Will you not possess whatever Chemosh, your God, gives you to possess? So whatever the Lord our God takes uh, possession of before us, we will possess. In other words, God has given us this land. Uh, your gods have given you that land, so be content with what you've got because we didn't just come in and take it from you. You know, they went in and God told them to wipe out uh, a certain uh, people group and the reasons for doing so. He says, therefore... Verse 25, And now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against him? Fight against them? While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages, in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon for 300 years, why did you not recover them within that time? In other words, 300 years have gone by. Why are you saying this all of a sudden? That's kind of the idea. Sounds familiar? And, uh, and the things that are going on in politics. Why did you wait all this time and then finally you come out and say something, right? Sometimes it's for good reason. Sometimes it's for not. So anyway, therefore, verse 27, I have not sinned against you, Jephthah says to the king of Ammon, but you wronged me by fighting against me. May the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. Remember, Ammon is the illegitimate son of Lot from his daughter, remember. So they are the people of Ammon. So verse 28, However, the king of the people of Ammon did not heed the words with which Jephthah sent him. And so now, verse 29, notice, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed through Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he advanced toward the people of Ammon. And one thing you have to understand is even though the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, it doesn't mean that, that, that God was, um, God was certain, certainly with him in, in a military sense in conquering and to conquer this people. But we know that the Spirit of God certainly wasn't involved in what we're going to see in a few minutes, meaning the decision, this rash vow that Jephthah had made. God didn't cause him to do that. God didn't uh, encourage him to do that. that was, he was all on his own when he did that. And so, and so finally, in verse 30, we see the vow that Jephthah makes. And you know, there's something interesting that happens to all of us when we are in a strait. Uh, oftentimes, we find ourselves in a pinch and we say things uh, to, to God or to somebody else you know, we'll, we'll say, I swear by, you know, whatever, I, I'll never do that again. Or I promise that if this, if you do this for me right now, then I promise that I'll do this. You know, we make these vows when we are in a strait. And 
Jephthah is in a strait because now he's going to go against his people and Jephthah wants to make sure that God is going to give him deliverance. So basically, what does he do? God doesn't tell him to do this. Jephthah willingly vows this vow. And this is a horrible thing of his whole career. This was the one thing that the Bible, in fact, in this whole um, narrative that we're looking at tonight, it mentions a little bit about the battle, but the most of it is, is speaking about the, this vow that he had made, you know, and, and Jephthah's daughter. And it's a really unfortunate thing. So Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and he said, if, and here's the conditional statement, if you will deliver me, God, the people of Ammon into my hands, then I will, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me, that when I return in peace from the people of Ammon, surely shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. And so there's no indication that the Lord required this. And doubtless, would it, you know, the Lord would have given him victory, uh, even still, had he not made the vow to begin with. So a lot of times when we get into these pinches, it's better not to vow at all. In fact, in Numbers chapter 30, it says this, it says, Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of Israel concerning this. He said, this is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And then later on in that same chapter of Numbers 30 and verse 6, it says, um, well, let, let me just leave it there. For, for time's sake, that's all we really need to look at. You know, if a man makes a vow, he needs to be faithful to continue and to fulfill that. In Deuteronomy 23, it says the same thing in verse 21. It says, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it will be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it shall not be sin to you. That which has gone forth from your lips... You shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed it to the Lord, your God, and you have promised with your mouth. And so there's quite a bit here stating that if you vow something of your own volition with your own mouth, then God's going to hold you accountable to, to pay that, to follow through with it. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, it says, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to repay. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. And, and we're going to see in, in Jephthah here in just a few minutes um, that there's a lot of speculation about how he dealt with this situation. Um, it's a very complicated issue. And we'll, we'll briefly look at that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 because uh, the words of Jesus are really important here. And we'll just look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus speaking, he says, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall perform your oaths. An oath is the same thing as a vow. It's a promise, right? You shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, don't swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black or gray. 
<laughs> you can't make your hair turn any color, <laughs> no matter what you do. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Because we often make vows, we make oaths that we are not capable of fulfilling, and we haven't really thought it through. We don't even have the means to fulfill an oath oftentimes. So it's better for us just not to do it at all. And I've made those kind of oaths to the Lord, and uh, I won't go into it now, but there's one specifically that I'm thinking of that is, you know, the Lord has His way. Uh, the Lord had His way, and um, it's just a wonderful thing. It's, it's always good to, to not vow, <laughs> but if you vow, um, you know, God can forgive anything, right? But it's better not to sin and to make some kind of vow that I'm not capable of fulfilling because I can't see what tomorrow holds. I can't see what the future holds. Sometimes there's things that happen in our life that prohibit us very, you know, it makes it impossible to do something. You know, I, I could make a, make a comment, you know, on a, on a day that I'm going to, I'll be at your house, you know, it's 45 minutes away, but I'll be there and I'll be here there at such and such a time and there's nobody else on the road but me and my car breaks down and I can't make it. So there's a, a good indicator that I don't have control over anything, really. And so it's, it's better for me not to make a vow. But notice what it says here. So Jephthah, verse 32, back in our text, He advanced toward the people of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands. And he defeated them from Aurorar as far as Minith, 20 cities, and to Ebel. Uh, Keramim with a very great slaughter. And thus the people of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And this is where the heartbreak comes in because now he's flushed with this victory. He's made the vow, probably already forgot about it perhaps, but he's got this great victory. And notice, when Jephthah came to his house at Mizpah, there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and dancing. And notice what the Bible says here. And I believe it says this because it's painting a picture. It's creating a type. Even though the type may not be the strongest, there is a type here that I think we'll see. Notice what it says, that she was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. You know, the Bible didn't have to mention that, but it did. And I think there's a reason why. It seems that the Holy Spirit may have been weaving in here this narrative of what was ultimately going to happen with Jesus, Him being the only Son, God's only Son that is going to die and, and, and die on a cross. Now, certainly Jephthah's daughter didn't die on a cross, but uh, there's some who believe she was uh, killed and offered as a burnt offering. And um, we'll look at that in a few minutes. But uh, So we see a type here. This innocent virgin young girl was going uh, uh, was going to potentially be uh, offered as a burnt sacrifice. So it came to pass, verse 35, that when he saw her, that he tore his clothes and he said, Alas, my daughter, can you imagine? I can't imagine this at all. If I was Jephthah and I was coming back from some victory after I've made some boneheaded vow <laughs> that I was going to, you know, the first thing that came out of my house, I was gonna, and then I see my daughter, Ariana, you know, to see her, you know, coming out. I mean, how would I, you know, honestly, I don't think I would have the guts to follow through it. I would just say, Lord, take my life. <laughs> you know, I was foolish to, to do something like that. Lord, do whatever you've got to do to me, but I will not do this. Forgive me, you know. 
very tough stuff. But it came to pass when he saw her that he tore his clothes. He said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You are among those who trouble me, for I have given my word to the Lord, and I cannot go back on it. So she said to him, My father, if you have given your word to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, because the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the people of Ammon. And I love this because you look at the daughter and it seems that she knew perhaps what her father had vowed. Perhaps she heard it before he left to go to the battle. You know, uh, and um, to me, if I were her and I heard that, I would probably hide back in the forest somewhere. Uh, even after the victory, I would hide myself somewhere. Uh, but it, this, this sounds an awful lot, a lot like, you know, Isaac you know, submitting himself to Abraham when Abraham was going to offer his son. And God, of course, intervened. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus, the only son, just like Isaac was. Now, Jesus, the only son, being offered in, uh, as, as a sacrifice. We, we, we see the type here. And I don't think it's any mistake that it says there in verse 34 that she was his only child beside her he had neither son nor daughter it was his only one so verse 37 she said to her father let this thing be done for me let me alone for two months that i may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity my friends and i and so he said go and he sent her away for two months and she went with her friends and they bewailed her virginity on the mountains and it was so at the end of the two months that she returned to her father and he carried out his vow with her which he had vowed. And notice, it says she, had, she knew no man. In other words, she was uh, sexually pure. She was a virgin. And it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gilead. Now some believe that Jephthah... Uh, didn't follow through with the actual killing of his daughter. Maybe he stoned her, and, and when she was killed, maybe then he offered her up as a burnt sacrifice. That would certainly be the more humane, I think. I can't imagine him burning her to death, uh, but I can see being knocked out and, and then being you know uh, snuffed out that way and then doing that deed. You know, Maybe he did that. There's some that believe that he did. And there are others that believe that his daughter uh, committed a life, uh, committed to a life of chastity, and maybe served at the uh, tabernacle or in the somehow in the service of the Lord for the rest of her life. You know, as you look at the, the passage, um, both of these views can be supported either way, and it's it's very difficult. And so, when it really comes down to it, we really don't know exactly what happened. I mean, certainly. You know, Jephthah knew that the, the, the Lord forbid human sacrifice. We see that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10, and other verses. I've got a whole list of them here. But also that a person could be redeemed with silver. In Leviticus chapter 27, it talks about how um, uh, the, that a person could be um, uh, redeemed uh, by silver for something that somebody has made a vow upon. And so I don't know if maybe Jephthah was aware of that. Maybe things had become such a, a bad state in Israel, and they certainly had. We know that the time of, ju of the judges was a time not of great uh, going forward, but really um, a time of just kind of hanging in there and God raising up uh, whoever he could. And, but it wasn't a good period of time, and, and things were in decline spiritually and morally. Everything was in decline, and, and so it's very possible 
that Jephthah, maybe he knew about this. Maybe he did that. Maybe she did uh, serve the Lord for the rest of her days, uh, being unmarried and remaining a virgin. Uh, the text could support that. And the text could also support, based on what we just read, that he carried out his vows, which he vowed, which he said he would do. It's very possible that he did that. It's very hard for me to understand that. Um, especially uh, Jephthah had to know that human sacrifice wasn't a good thing. And, um, but, you know, uh, again, we, we just don't know. We just don't know. So we, if we take the text exactly what it says, it could mean that he really did what he said he was going to do. And, and I'll just leave it there because there is nothing else we can do. We can think of these two different views and you can come to your own conclusions. Um, my hope is that he didn't do that. But maybe some, someday we will know what happened. So let's look at Judges chapter 12 really quickly. This is not going to take very long. But Jephthah, so the, then the men of Ephraim gathered together. They crossed over toward uh, Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon and you did not call us to go with you? We're going to burn your house down on you with fire. What great brothers. What a great group of guys, <laughs> you know. And remember, this sounds an awful lot like what happened with Gideon in chapter 8, uh, 7 and 8 when uh, he went against the uh, Amalekites and the Midianites. He, he went ahead and did that and then asked Ephraim to get involved. And remember, Ephraim, uh, concerning all the tribes, they were the firstborn. They were the most prominent. And, and they were a little upset that Gideon didn't include them in the raid and, and, the, and the whole operation. And now uh, they're upset with Jephthah because he and his group went against the Ammonites and had victory but didn't include Ephraim. So Ephraim is feeling kind of sour and feeling kind of jealous that they weren't included as well. And so Jephthah said to them, My people and I were in a great struggle and the people of Am uh, with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. Now there's no record, biblically, where Jephthah made this invitation to the Ephraimites requesting their help. So we don't really know if there was or not. So nothing you can say about that. <laughs> Verse 3. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and I crossed over against the people of Ammon. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. So now Gilead and Jephthah, they're fighting against you know, their, their, their brothers, the, the Ephraimites. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, You Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. So the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan before the Ephraimites arrived. So right there in the Jordan River, a ford is a, a, a spot that is shallow. Oftentimes there's, it's, it, it can be rocky and it's, it's not a real deep place. It's a place where it's easy to cross. That's really what a ford is. It's, it's a shallow spot where you can cross over. And so that's where people would uh, cross over when they could. They would cross over at one of the fords in the Jordan rather than somewhere else where it's deeper. It only makes sense. So the Gileadites, they, they, they waited there at the ford of the uh, Jordan River and, and when any Ephraimite who escaped said, Let me cross over, the men of Gilead would say to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And if he said no, then they would say to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he would say Sibboleth. 
<laughs> for he could not pronounce it right. And then they would take him and kill him at the fords uh, of the Jordan. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Uh, Shibboleth literally means, uh, the word means a flowing stream. And the, the Ephraimites, and you can understand this even within uh, parts of America. You know, you can, up here in Rochester, we can say, you know, how you doing? Or how are you doing? But you go down to North Carolina, and it's, how you doing? <laughs> or, you know, they'll say it with a southern draw, and you can tell by their dialect, even though it's English, that they are from North Carolina. And from somebody from Mississippi, you can also tell somebody from somebody who's, somebody who's from Mississippi, because you can tell how, how they talk, and there's certain dialects that identify them. And this is one of them that the Gileadites were able to kind of blow these guys in by just having them pronounce a certain word because they had a problem pronouncing the sh, the sh, sh, sh sound. They could only say uh, s. And so they gave themselves away and it cost them their life. And so uh, Jephthah, verse 7, he judged Israel six years and then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. And then really the, the rest of the chapter, it goes very quickly. Uh, just like we saw in the very first five verses of chapter 10, um, there's not a whole lot here. So we'll just read it straight through. Uh, not a lot here. It says, After him, after, uh, after Jephthah, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. Now this Bethlehem is not the Bethlehem that we're thinking of. When we think of Bethlehem, we think of Bethlehem Judah. There were at least two different Bethlehems in, the, in Israel. I don't think this is the one that was in Judah. But after him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Ajalon in the country of Zebulun. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, judged Israel. And notice this, and remember when we first started, when we were looking at the third and fourth verse of chapter 10, where it talked about this judge... Uh, named Jair, that he had uh, twenty, uh, he had thirty sons. I'm sorry, who rode on thirty donkeys. Now look at this gentleman, and Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, he judged Israel, and he had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy young donkeys, and he judged Israel for eighty or for eight years. Excuse me, and then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pyrethonite, died and was buried in Pyr and buried. Excuse me and Pyrathon in the land of Ephraim in the mountains of the Amalekites. And so we see this last gentleman, and it just kind of seems like a, a familiar uh, theme that happens with men in power at this time. They, they tended to multiply uh, sons and daughters. They had big families, and that was one way to... Um, to perpetuate uh, your power is to have many children and certainly marry those children off to certain other countries so that you could have alliances with other people groups. Uh, that was part of the reasoning, perhaps. And also having many donkeys and many sons riding on them, it just speaks of authority. And only the wealthy were able to do that. And so now he's got these 70 you know, people in his family riding around town and everybody knows who they are. And it's just uh, uh, just another way to you know, establish themselves. But, you know, when we look at Jephthah, as, as we looked at tonight, it's, it's a really unfortunate thing. You know, he, he was a leader. And, and I love the fact that in Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, it says, you know, time doesn't permit us to talk about Jephthah. You know, speaking of faith and, and how God used this man. And 
um, you know, by faith, he, he believed that God was going to, d to deliver him. And, and he certainly, one of the glaring things in his life was this foolish vow that he had made. God had given him victory over the Ammonites. And, you know, the Lord didn't require, he didn't require Jephthah to make this foolish vow. And regardless of how things turned out with his daughter, you know, and especially if he actually followed through with what he said he was going to do, these are horrible things. And, um, you know, I would encourage you to, you know, be careful about the things that you say. One of the things as a pastor, and certainly in the position I'm in, um, is I realize how important my words are. And this is going to sound funny to you, but I often listen to my messages <laughs> and I listen carefully to how I stutter. I listen to how I go, um, uh, duh, you know, I, I listen to that kind of, those kind of things. And I'm like, I really, uh, I listen carefully and I listen to what I say and I try to be purposeful in what I say and meaningful in what I say to mean what I say and to say what I mean. And for any of you who do any public speaking, you know that sometimes your mouth can run away from you. But when it comes to this, you got to be really careful, right? And so, you know, that's what happened to Jephthah. He let his his vow. He started speaking just just out of fear. He just wanted he just wanted victory. And you know, it would have been better for him to just say, "Lord, in my heart, this is what I want to do, but I'm not going to do it." Would you simply just very easily? You know, just give us the victory just because, you know, it's the right thing. Because these people are oppressing us for no reason. They don't have a good cause to do it. And they're oppressing us. Lord, give us victory. And that would have been enough. And God says, you know what? Good. I'll do it. In fact, I'll even throw in, I'll throw in some extras, you know. <laughs> but because of our, our lack of faith sometimes, sometimes because of our, our, our frailty, we, we often like to layer things and, and make you know, if you do this, God, then I will do this. And the Lord doesn't require any of that. So be careful when you do that. And don't make any promises to God that you can't keep. It's better not to pray that way at all. I mean, Jesus said so. We just read it in Matthew chapter 5. It's, it's written for us in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament, excuse me, in Deuteronomy and other places. There's a whole list. We didn't get to some of them. But you get the point. And so... You know, and God could use someone like Jephthah, this black sheep of the family that nobody else wanted. And that, that seems to fit the character of God. He always loves to choose that which the world doesn't really like, that which the world has cast off, that which the world has thrown away. He loves to use those base things of the world to confound the wise. He's always seemed to have done that. And, you know, that, that's good enough for me, you know. I love the Lord for that. I love that He is the God of the underdog and He can do anything. And He often does the things that we're not even thinking of. Have you ever experienced that? Just, you know, something that seems impossible. You know, I'll be honest with you. One of the things recently that really shook me yesterday was we got this camera in the mail. I've been waiting for this thing. And... Um, it was supposed to come, you know, it wasn't even going to be here until like the latter part of June, maybe the first week of July. And then all of a sudden it comes in the mail. And um, it was just one of those silly little things, you know, where you just ask God, you know, we did pray about that. I'm like, you know, it doesn't seem possible, Lord, because I know it's probably coming on the slow boat from China. 
nothing against China per se, but it's coming from you know overseas, and it's got a long way to go and a lot of hands to t go through, and and then he just delivers it, you know, and it just it really ministered to my faith yesterday, just because, you know, you pray about something and then you're, you know, sometimes you're just like, you know, it just seems impossible, and then, you know, we get this note on our door, <laughs> you know, that there's a package, and I'm like. Not sure what package it is because I'm not, not expecting anything for probably at least three or four weeks, and then to you know track down the U, or the FedEx guy and find out they had it and here it is and I just like I, I just I actually I won't tell you it just it, it really ministered to me. So the bottom line is God is good and He is faithful. He is faithful and we don't need to make um, promises that we can't keep. We can just simply ask Him. Because he's just a good father, he's a good dad, he's he's a good God in every sense of the word. So be encouraged by that, folks. And so we'll uh, we'll just stop there. Thank you for your patience. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for this time together. Pray that you administer to our hearts, Lord, and just keep us in your perfect peace and keep us in your will, God, and and set a, a guard, Lord, at our heart that it doesn't even have a chance to get to our mouth. Lord, may our heart be the governor over every thought, over every word that we speak. God, may it be true of us. Lord, continue to work that in me, that I would not say anything just to be speaking. Lord, help every word to be purposeful, God. I pray that you do that in my heart and also in the hearts and the lives of my brothers and sisters. Please do that with us, Lord. And thank you for the example of Jephthah. And Lord, help, us, help warn us for what he did, Lord, that we wouldn't make those rash things, rash vows. So, Lord, have your way with us tonight and all throughout the rest of this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.